Uh, well, what I've prepared for you today is, uh, <clears throat> given the circumstances this week, is something a, a little special, at least it is uh, for me. Because, however, it was last minute, uh, I was not really able to come up with a, a very creative uh, title. And uh, You'll see the title that I ended up with there, Three Big Truths About Salvation Found in Three Little Verses. So that's the title, and uh, the text that we're going to be looking at is uh, 1 Peter. So if you would turn there now, 1 Peter chapter 1, the three little verses then are verses 1 through 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Let me go ahead and just read those verses in your hearing, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Starting then in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you that uh, we again have the wonderful incredibly wonderful privilege of being able to come in to your house. We know that you are here with us in this place. It is indeed your house, as we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Father, we look forward to that every week, to gather with you and to sing our praises to you, to make a public proclamation to you. But most importantly, we look forward to the time when we hear back from you. We hear from you through the teaching of your word. Father, I pray that as we do that now, that, Father, that you would give us teachable hearts. Give us the hearts of disciples. Those who are ready to not only hear what is being said by you from your word, but also, Lord, to become doers of what is said. We pray this. To the glory of our dear Savior's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us have probably read these verses that I read in your hearing and not thought much about uh, them. But in these three little verses, we find three big truths about salvation. If you'll direct your eyes to the top of the handout, you'll see the first. And that is this. That God's great mercy, or that God's mercy rather, is great towards us, is proven by the fact that he designed a backup plan to save us if we messed up the original plan. Let me say that again. That God's mercy is great toward us, is proven by the fact that he designed a backup plan to save us if we messed up. The original plan. Look with me again at our verses. 
Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to Peter, God's plan and what we just read to save people like us Elect exiles, the term he uses here, elect just means uh, chosen. The term there, exiles, referring to uh, people who were previously without mercy. People just like us. Gentiles is the term that is used in scripture to describe people like us. People outside of God's covenant promises. Those that were given exclusively at one time to the Jews. We know that this is indeed who he is speaking to because in chapter 2, verse 10, he says this to this same audience. Verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, plugging all of that then back into this text, according to Peter, uh, Peter, rather, God's plan to save or to choose people or elect people for salvation. People at one time who were without hope was before he created the world. That plan was before he created the world. Where am I getting that from? Well, that, that phrase there, after uh, saying or identifying this group as the elect exiles, uh, they are that according chosen, these exiles chosen to salvation according to the prognosto, the foreknowledge of God, the beforehand knowledge of God, the prior knowledge of God, and the prior knowledge of God that he is speaking of here is the knowledge of God or the plan of God before creation. Peter is saying then in no uncertain terms that this again was when God made this plan. What plan? The plan to save us. Paul echoes this truth in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. You look there. Here speaking again about our election or choosing He says this, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose, elected us in Him. Notice when that took place. Before the foundation of the world. Which is just another way of saying, uh, before creation itself. In other words, God had already decided to give us, humanity, a second chance. He decided that if we screwed up the original plan, He would give us another chance to still live as immortal superhumans. Planet hopping through an infinite number of galaxies, discovering and transforming these strange new worlds for His glory. And why do I say that? Well, because that was the original plan for this universe. And that is his plan for the next one to come. Uh, Support for this idea. Support for this idea, or biblical support for uh, this idea that God's original plan and the reboot to come 
was and is for us to be immortal, galaxy-conquering superhumans. I propose three things. Number one, God originally made us as immortal. That's how we were first made according to Genesis. He first made us immortal and gave us not just this planet, but according to Isaiah, the universe with this mandate, two things, to conquer it, which according to those words that we find in places like Genesis chapter 2, that means terraforming or turning it all into one massive garden of Eden, which literally means, that term translated garden of Eden in the Hebrew, paradise. To take the boundaries of that place where God put uh, our parents, Adam and Eve, and to extend the boundaries of that paradise until it covered not only this planet, but then to take that uh, to the planets that exist, even to this day. That was the original plan. To conquer it and to be its caretakers. Literally to uh, develop it And to keep it or to guard it. To be its caretakers. And so this was a part of God's original plan. And we again get that from places like Genesis chapters 1 and 2. As well as Isaiah. The reboot, number 2, will be just like the original. We're told that in places like Revelation. As well as again, Isaiah. The new heavens and the new earth. 2 Peter also speaks to this in 2 Peter chapter 3. The old earth, the old universe, including the heavens, and that's why that term is uh, plural heavens, rather than the throne of God. The heavens, the rest of the universe, will be burned up. And in its place will come the reboot, the new universe. And this reboot will be just like the original, only this time without the possibility of sin or rebellion wrecking us or it. Thirdly, thirdly, in the reboot, we will not only once more be immortal or superhumans unable to die. That's what that term immortal refers to is the inability to die. We will again be that, but much more, we will also possess superpowers. Superhumans with superpowers, like, according to Matthew 21, the angels. Three things we're told about the angels that we can then safely assume will be true about us as well at that time. That we will possess super strength. As it relates to the angels, one angel, according to Revelation, has enough strength to destroy a third of the planet or thousands of soldiers while suffering no personal harm. 185,000, according to Second Kings. Super speed. Angels can travel thousands of miles or globally in a very short period of time and without the aid of special vehicles. They don't have cars, they don't have jets, they don't have bullet trains. And yet in Job we read that they uh, they can move to and fro through the earth many times over in a very short period of time. Super strength, super speed. 
This third uh, category I've just called super sovereignty or control, referring to the fact that angels can control the actions of plagues. Second Samuel talks about angels being in control of that. And in Daniel, also animals. And so those three things will, again, we can safely assume be true of us, since we will, according to Matthew 21, be like the angels. All of these things, then, is what a person is going to miss out on if they're not living for Christ. These three things that will be a part of the reboot, the new heavens and the new earth. Why this then proves God's mercy is great towards us? Well, three reasons. Uh, because that's what Peter says, first of all. In chapter, uh, or excuse me, verse 3, uh, they're the first part of it again here, just reiterating to some degree, but adding to the content of what we've already been told. Uh, notice, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and here again the according, according to His great mercy. And we should read that then back into verse 2 where we hear, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God, according to His plan. That plan, that plan to give us a second chance, that plan to make us a part of this awesome reboot, that was all a part of His great mercy. Number two, because God had no obligation to show mercy to us. It is indeed great in that way because... uh, We're the ones that rebelled against him. We're the bad guys. Even though he gave us everything, our parents were immortal. There was no sin among humankind. He gave us all the ability to transform even this universe. And instead again we rebelled. The only obligation then God has in light of that is the obligation to justice. People today don't like talk about hell. What they don't realize is is that hell is just the manifestation of God's justice. And so may, uh, maybe the, uh, the response or the question that should be asked to people who don't like hell is, do you not like justice? Because what the majority of people who will go there will be receiving in that place is justice. Justice. Why? Well, because the people who are there, which again is the majority of people or humankind according to scriptures, or the scriptures, because those people refused to serve justice and to live just or righteous lives Now, really what it comes down to is one way or the other, uh, you you will be associated with justice. Number three, because what God has prepared for us in the reboot far outweighs anything we could ever give back to Him or do for Him in this life. It is for that reason truly amazing mercy, or as we sing, uh, amazing grace. And that term grace just refers to at many times the same thing as mercy. There's nothing, beloved, that we could do in this life that could ever uh, equate to what it is we're going to gain in the next. 
First uh, Corinthians two nine that Paul speaks this way. First Corinthians two nine. His perspective on the matter, knowing these things, desiring to be a part of the reboot, living his life unto that end. But it is written, he says, what no eye has seen, speaking again, by the way, of what is to come, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Literally, it is, it is too big for our imagination. The heart of man cannot even imagine it. That is what God has prepared, notice, in the text, for those who love Him. That's what's coming. And all because of His great mercy. His great mercy being proven through His great plan. The plan to give us sinful, undeserving human beings a second chance in a place much better than this one. In many, many ways. You think about all the fascination today with uh, superheroes or people with powers. You think of the Marvel movies, the Avengers. And I think a lot of that is uh, based on what they call, old philosophers used to call prescience. Again, an idea or uh, a, a, a concept very similar to foreknowledge. Mankind knows that this is their destiny. And so reaching through their imaginations, they imagine these kinds of things and yet all of those things. We go and we spend 20 bucks to go to a theater and eat popcorn to watch. Are all the very things that God promises we will become if we live for Him. That because, again, of His great mercy. Number two, the second big truth about salvation that we find in these very non-assuming little verses is this. If you want to be a part of God's merciful and awesome reboot then you have to receive a legitimate baptism. If you want to be a part of God's merciful and awesome reboot, then you have to receive a legitimate baptism. Going back then uh, to our verses or our text and moving or taking the text a little bit further into what Peter uh, says here, he tells us that we have been chosen, again, these exiles, those who were at one time without hope, without God, That was according to God's prior plan, His backup plan, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Then notice this, in the sanctification of the Spirit. That little preposition there that is translated in is what we call in translation a locative, or it's functioning in the locative sense, which means that what it's referring to is location. And so what Peter is telling us here is, uh, this is where we were chosen for salvation. Uh, We were chosen or elected for salvation or given the shot at the reboot in the sanctification of the Spirit. In that place. What place is he referring to? Well, this uh, phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit, is a reference to baptism. 
We are saved in the sanctifying and spiritual waters of baptism. That's what he's saying here. Why can we be confident that that is indeed the correct understanding of this phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit? Well, because this is where we receive the Holy Spirit and His work of sanctification. You'll notice two points there. This is the place where, number one, He cleanses or washes away our sins. He does it again in the waters of baptism. It is the place, in other words, where the Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ in forgiveness to our lives. And secondly, it is also the place where we are given a new soul. The old corrupted soul is taken out and uh, we are given a new one. And in scripture, the uh, terms that are used to refer to this is new birth or being born again. Or regeneration. And once more, baptism is the only place where all of those things take place. Where we truly receive sanctification in those ways. Forgiveness of sins. New birth. It is only in baptism that those things take place. Hence why baptism then is the only place that God will accept our faith unto salvation. It's the only place that God will accept our faith. Today we, we hear a lot about faith, which is appropriate. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith. John 3.16, you see it at every football stadium, right? Believe, Right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, faith uh, or belief, we make a lot of that and uh, rightly so, but the question that we fail to ask is, where? And again, Scripture answers that question. Going back up to, uh, then again, that that locative uh, prepositional phrase there, or, or preposition, in. Where he does it is in the sanctification of the Spirit. He does it in baptism. Why? Because uh, these, the things that happen in baptism, again, forgiveness of sins, the new birth, these are the things that need to happen or take place if we are to be saved. Just think about it from the the, uh, standpoint of a question. Does anyone believe, even those who claim to be Christians today, but don't teach this, do they really believe that a person can be saved without their sins being cleansed? Or their souls being renewed? Even though I haven't taken the time to ask the majority of those that claim to be Christians this, this question, I think they would all answer no can be saved unless uh, your sins have been forgiven or cleansed. And uh, also, you need the new birth. You need to be born again. The famous preacher, uh, John Owen, this was at the center of his preaching, the new birth, that a man must be born again. In the words of Jesus, if he is to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yet that power 
The power to release us from our sins, to cleanse us from our sins, and to renew our souls is again only found in the waters of baptism. Which means not your prayer. Popular today is what's called the, the sinner's prayer. I grew up hearing this in the churches that I grew up in and later after that. You can find a, a lot of material even today that after they seem to present the gospel, or at least that's what they claim to do, they'll be on the back of that pamphlet, the sinner's prayer. As though a person can just say the prayer and all of a sudden their, their sins will be cleansed, their souls renewed. And yet that's never the case. Biblically, that's never the case. We never see anyone in the scriptures simply praying a prayer to be saved. Now, wouldn't you expect to find that if that was true? Never do we find anyone simply being told uh, to believe or put faith in Christ without association to baptism. They are commanded to be baptized with that faith if they are to receive Christ's forgiveness and the new birth. Some passages to consider. The first is the one I mentioned, John chapter 3. This coming from the mouth of our Lord. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Notice, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, Nicodemus is thinking only in physical terms when it comes to to birth. Notice how Jesus responds. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Here again, a play on or the association. Pick it up between uh, water, baptism, and the Spirit. The idea that when we see the Spirit or sanctification of the Spirit, in the sanctification of the Spirit, what we have is the waters of baptism. Unless one is born that way, notice again, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And straight again from the mouth of our Lord, Baptism is necessary to getting into heaven. That's what he means by the kingdom of God or the coming reboot, the new heavens and the new earth, the new universe. Acts 22, Paul here recounting his conversion. Acts 22, Paul Uh, Here speaking of uh, his conversion. Here he's speaking to uh, the Jewish people. This is after his arrest in the temple that takes place in Acts 21. And uh, as he uh, recounts that, 
the man, Ananias, is the one that uh, is ministering to Paul at this time. And uh, these are his words to Paul. Notice uh, what he says. And now, verse 16, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Notice what happens when you get baptized. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Notice what else is a part of this package. Calling on His name. Where does the forgiveness of sins take place? Where does the washing or the cleansing away of sins take place? Well, uh, according to uh, Paul or Ananias in relation to Paul, it takes place in baptism. Hence the reason that uh, Ananias says those words, rise and be baptized. And again, noticing from the text, this too is the place where we call upon His name, upon the name of Jesus. This is the place where we express our faith. This is the place where God accepts our faith. In the waters of baptism. Acts chapter 2, turning back uh, then to the second chapter. This is the reason that Peter at uh, Pentecost, remember when all those Jews uh, were required to come back or the Jewish males were to come back and uh, they would bring their families during those times. We see this uh, uh, a lot in the Gospels uh, when Jesus was a young boy uh, being taken to Jerusalem for uh, one of those required holy festivals. And uh, Pentecost was uh, one of those, one of the three. And uh, Peter preaches there to the crowds uh, that Jesus was Messiah, that he was the king, that they crucified the wrong guy. And we're told uh, that when they heard this, you'll notice there, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, Curios, boss, master, and Christ, literally Messiah, anointed one, king. He's made him the master. He's made him the boss. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Cut to the heart, very different than uh, what we read uh, in the case of uh, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 where it says they were cut to the quick. This figure of speech here refers to uh, being broken, being desperate rather than cut to the quick, which is uh, a reference to anger wanting to destroy those who have spoken words to you, which is what they do with Stephen. In this case, they're undone, cut to the heart, hearing this, uh, these words. The guy they crucified, he was their king. He was their master. He was their only hope at salvation. And so again, what do they say? Well, to Peter and uh, the rest of the brothers who are with him, what? What shall we do? Can you imagine finding out that you were a part of that? That you approved of that? Maybe you were there? And now you hear that that was your king? That was your only, your, your only hope of salvation? And so they're pleading out to, to Peter, what shall we do? Notice how Peter responds, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Baptized. 
There again. Not, hey guys, uh, every one of you, heads bowed, eyes closed, pray this prayer with me. Or, or at this point, why don't you, I got a little altar up here, why don't you all come forward? Right. Said it's repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And notice what happens in the baptism. For, here's what it produces. For the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the new birth. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. With that added peace that comes in the new birth. Now that we no longer have a corrupted soul. The Holy Spirit can come and take up residence in that place. And again, all of that happening as a result of baptism. Baptism. This is the reason, uh, even in places like Acts chapter 16, where we see Paul uh, witnessing to uh, uh, Lydia, who was down by the, uh, the river where there was a place to pray, and he, he, it says that God opened her heart to hear, very similar to this idea of being cut to the heart. And uh, we're told there that after preaching this gospel, no doubt to her, and also then to the Philippian jailer, in that same chapter, what are we told uh, that Paul does with both of these individuals, uh, or uh, with Lydia, and then also with the Philippian jailer and his household? They are baptized. They are baptized. Galatians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Another text that uh, speaks this way about uh, baptism. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I think everyone would agree, everyone who claims to be Christian, that uh, What they're attempting to do is put on Christ. They know that if they're going to go to heaven, they need Christ. Most specifically, they need His saving blood. That's what it means to put on Christ. You have put on or His saving work has been imputed to you. And again, notice, Paul here qualifies that with baptism. As many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. As many of you that were baptized into Christ, into His name, into that kind of a baptism, a legitimate baptism, which we're going to talk more about here uh, in just a second. But again, notice the connection. Notice again the qualification Only those, that's what he's saying by, as many of you were baptized. Meaning if you weren't, no dice. Right? Only those who have been baptized have put on Christ. The final text I would have you consider is Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Paul's uh, epistle to Titus there giving him instruction as it relates to uh, building or planting churches there on the Isle of Crete. And as part of that uh, epistle or uh, letter, he speaks uh, to this, to our salvation. These words, he saved us. The kindness of our God and Savior appeared, verse 4, 
This God, through his kindness, his mercy, again, saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There's the mercy piece again. Here's how, here's the instrument, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Sounds very similar, does it not, to Peter's words back in our verses, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Here it's just the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Again, that word regeneration referring to uh, the new birth. And again, the thing not to miss is that they're all only associated with baptism. Notice, by the way, that Peter refers to, uh, going back to our text, uh, both forgiveness of sin and the new birth in our verses, or in conjunction, again, with this act of in the sanctification by the Spirit. Going back up to uh, verse 2, the end there, after uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit, uh, you have and, skipping over the for obedience to Jesus Christ, we'll come back to that, uh, but it's also for sprinkling with His blood. Which is a reference to what? The forgiveness of sins. Sprinkling with the blood of Christ. In this sanctification of the Spirit, uh, we receive what? Sprinkling with His blood. As it relates to the new birth, verse 3. Again, same context. According to His great mercy, this great mercy that has given to us also this great and powerful baptism, in that He has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Saying that the new birth or being born again takes place through the resurrection of Jesus Christ also confirms that what Peter is talking about is again baptism. Why do I say that? Well, this is how Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 3, or excuse me, 6, verses 3 and 4. Notice, do you not know, verse 3, Romans 6, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, Notice verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus or Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is he doing here? Well, just what I said. He's seeing baptism as entrance into his death and also then entrance into his resurrection. Hence the reason that Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 that we now possess resurrection power. And so again, this is the reason that Peter here no doubt refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This new birth was through the resurrection. Again, pointing to Baptism, or that that phrase, in the sanctification of the Spirit, is speaking to that issue, the issue of baptism. If you're still not convinced, 
Peter is explicit about this very issue, baptism uh, being connected to or necessary to salvation, in chapter 3 of this very same letter, verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 3, turning over to chapter 3, verse 21. As I said, explicit now. Baptism which corresponds to this. God, in the previous verses, he talks about God saving Noah through the waters. And here he's going to make the link to baptism, the waters of baptism. In a sense, what he's saying is that Noah was essentially baptized through those waters unto his salvation. Baptism which corresponds to that event, now notice, what does it say? Now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Somebody says, we don't need to be baptized We just need faith. This is the verse you read to them. A baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. And if they disagree, just just keep reading it slower every time. Right? (laughs) Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body. He's saying we're not talking about taking a bath here. This isn't a physical dirt that we're concerned with here. We're talking about something spiritual... Something that God grants to us, i.e. salvation. But notice how that takes place. Because in those waters, what is also taking place. Remember what we saw in Acts 22, what Ananias told Paul, calling upon his name. We find the same thing or similar words here. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal To God for a good conscience. And here again our connection to the resurrection. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The the, the same phrase that we find back in chapter 1 verse 3. Here again connected to what he's talking about. Making it absolutely clear. That baptism is indeed what he's talking about when he says in the sanctification of the spirit. Our appeal to God in the waters of baptism, our faith in God calling upon the name of Christ in that place, that's the place where it is received. And so this idea of faith alone, or faith that I can do wherever I want, doesn't hold water. Excuse the pun. It needs the water if God is to accept it, which again, as I said, is the, really the important question. Nobody denies that we need faith. But it's where does God accept that faith? You see, that's the issue. That's the million-dollar question. And when you ask that question, the Scripture abundantly answers back. Baptism. Baptism. As it relates then to This issue of legitimate baptism, again, notice that's uh, what I say here. If you want to be a part of God's merciful and awesome reboot, who wouldn't want to be, right? It blows me away sometimes how people are so fixated on living for this toilet. (sighs) Drinking the water out of the toilet in this world. Eating the turds out of the toilet in this world. 
and thinking that's better than giving your life now and living a life worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ so that I can live somewhere according to the Apostle Paul that I can't even imagine because it's so much better. Truly what Solomon says, men are indeed insane. If I want that though, if I want to be a part of that, then I have to receive a legitimate baptism. Well now I want to I want to clarify that and quantify that for you. That means two things according to Scripture. It must be in a church. It must be in a church. Why do I say that? Well, because God has given the blood of Christ and the power for forgiveness only to His church. You say, why have I never heard this? I've been in a lot of churches... I've been in a lot of places that speak as though they're Christian, and I've never heard these things. The real simple answer is because you've never honestly heard the Word of God. So the question is, which are you going to listen to? God's words or the words of men? Which of those two do you think will get you to heaven? Going then to God's word, I say here it must be in the church, and that because this is the place where the blood of Christ resides. And again, remember, that's what we need to cleanse or wash away our sins. And this is also the only place with that kind of authority, with that kind of power to be able to forgive sins. He who preaches most boldly must prove most assuredly. And now I want to show you. Not my words, but God's words. As it relates to Christ's blood being in the church, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Man, you say, you know, I think about this sometimes and, and uh, what goes through people's minds and uh, maybe yours at times and you say... I. I have family, I have friends who claim to be Christian and they've never heard these words. Well, then you need to do like the, uh, the, the, the demoniac of the Gadarenes that Jesus, you remember, heals and exercises those demons and he asks Jesus the question. He says, can I go with you? Or he says, I want to go with you. And what does Jesus respond and say? No, go back and tell your families what you've heard. You see, that's your mandate, guys. Go back and tell them. Don't leave them in their damning ignorance as it relates to these things, these big truths as it relates to salvation. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Paul here giving instruction to the Ephesian elders. He's met with them on the Isle of Miletus and he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church Notice the final phrase, which he, meaning Jesus, obtained with his own blood. The church, which he obtained with his own blood. Where then, according to what he says here, where's the blood? It's in the church. It's in the church, and most specifically, it's in the waters of baptism. How do I know that? Because of what we've already looked at. That's the place where his blood is cleansing away our sins. Go back to Ananias. Rise and be baptized and cleanse away your sins, calling upon his name, the one who gave his blood. In that place, 
the church that he purchased with his own blood. The blood resides in the church. That's why it needs to take place in a church. Also, this is the power, the only place that Jesus has given the authority for the binding and loosing or for the forgiving of sins. This is Matthew chapter 16. You know the text. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, literally, according to the context here, what is he dealing with? Authority on this rock, meaning this rock of authority, I will build my church. He's designating uh, Peter as an anointed, ordained man. And he says, on this rock of authority, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why not? The idea of the gates of hell prevailing against it is the idea that hell will take you over and take you to its place. It will take you to hell. He says that won't happen because of this authority that's been given to you. I will, verse 19, give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you, you leaders, God's ordained men in the church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Wow. Most churches, by the way, don't know what to do with that. Ask them. They'd rather that those verses went away. Where does Jesus put his authority? I think it's easy. The answer is easy, is it not? According to God's word, in the church. If you're not really sure what he means by binding and loosing, all you have to do is turn over to John chapter 20 where we see Jesus making good on this promise that he's going to do this just before his ascension back to heaven. John chapter 20, this is after his resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before. This is not the Holy Spirit associated with Pentecost, that which we receive in the waters of baptism. This is not the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the authority of the Holy Spirit. It's that mantle of authority for the purpose of binding and loosing so that the Holy Spirit can do His works in the waters of baptism. Notice verse 23. With this authority receiving this, and again, to these leaders, now making good on what he said back in Matthew 16. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Where does that exist? You? You, after watching Billy Graham on the boob tube? Where does that exist? If I ask the question as a disciple, which is what that, or learner rather, which is what that term disciple means, mathetes, learner. If I ask the question, assuming I don't know, and I go to God's word, again it's clear. 
It resides in the church. And so legitimate baptism, uh, legitimate baptism uh, takes place in the church. Daddy dunking the kids in the bathtub. Or self-induced baptisms. Or Christian camp baptisms do not therefore qualify. Hence the reason the common saying in the early church was there is no salvation outside the church. And that was, as we saw many times, uh, through many different authors in the early church, those words. There was no salvation outside of the church. Christ's authority for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit doing the work of applying the work of Christ to our lives, giving us a new, uncorrupted soul, resides only in the church, the place where Christ's blood also resides, the place, again, of authority. Number two, that church it must be a church where Christ and his authority do truly reside, which means they are churches preaching the right gospel. So it's not enough to just say, well, I, I, I need to find a church. Anything that says C-H-U-R-C-H on the door, I'm good. Baptize me, right? There's true churches and there are false churches. Again, if you ask that question, you'll find that to be true all over the scripture. Second Peter as well as Jude are written to this very thing, to beware of these kinds of churches, false churches, and it gives us the discernment to know how to discern between one or the other. We see this also in Paul's beginning words to the Galatians, warning them that they better have in their churches the right gospel. Otherwise, they're not sending anyone to heaven because they don't have that authority. The only thing they will have the authority to do if their gospel is wrong is to send them to hell. Again, you know the text in the verses, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice that. What shocks Paul and what causes Paul to say they are deserting Christ. Can a person be saved? Can a, can a church dispense salvation if Christ is not there? Paul's worried that uh, these churches are doing that and that because, again, notice, turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. Notice he qualifies it. There isn't a different one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort, twist, literally, the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, it doesn't matter who's preaching it. Literally, he says, if it was an angel standing here and they were telling you a different gospel, should they preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, the legitimate or true gospel Paul is speaking of, let him be accursed, literally damned to hell. That's what that term translated there, accursed, means. Let him be damned to hell. Anathema is the transliteration of that term that we use in English sometimes. 
Let him be anathema. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be anathema, a curse. Let him be damned to hell. Notice he says it again, but notice uh, in that verse 9 he says, as we have said before. What does that tell us? Well, when Paul planted these churches in the Galatian region, he told them this. You want to know who your brothers are? Who the legitimate Christians are? Who the legitimate churches are? This is what you look for. What's their gospel? What's their gospel? Are they preaching what God says are the necessary conditions to salvation? And that means all of it. Not just part of it. Are they preaching all of it? All of it. And so again, uh, this is uh, what distinguishes then the true church from the false church. Do they have the right gospel? Which means then, if I'm going to receive a legitimate baptism, uh, this too is important because the only ones with authority, the only ones where Christ's blood resides are those places preaching the right gospel. Those churches, we might say, that are truly Christ's churches. That brings us then to our final big truth. To be baptized or receive Christ's forgiveness in the new birth for salvation to do that, we must first commit to living the rest of our lives in faithful obedience to Jesus' commands. Again, let me just say that one more time. To be baptized or receive Christ's forgiveness and the new birth for salvation. We saw that those things are necessary. We must commit to living the rest of our lives in faithful obedience to Jesus' commands. Going back then one last time to our text. 1 Peter 1 here now uh, finishing up or moving to that piece I skipped over earlier in the sanctification of the Spirit. That's the place where we receive God's salvation. That's where we're chosen or elected. That's where we become a part of His plan in the reboot. Notice in the sanctification of the Spirit, yes, for Sprinkling with his blood, that's how it comes about. We need Christ's blood to cleanse away our sins. But notice just before that, uh, again, that phrase that I skipped over, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What is he telling us? Well, that when we get baptized... We do it with the understanding that we're going to live differently than we lived in the past. Our lives will now be focused on obeying everything Jesus commands in His Word. The reason Peter puts this before uh, talking about being sprinkled with Christ's blood is because this is what we must first commit to doing. Otherwise, no baptism, no forgiveness. Notice again, it does indeed come before the sprinkling with blood. You get this baptism, Peter, saying, with the understanding that if Christ is going to forgive your sins, you're going to live the rest of your days for Him. 
And living the rest of your days is, uh, for him is not something you get to define. It means full obedience to what he says. He is now the one, through his word, he is now the one that defines what your life will look like. This then is the other condition to salvation. The other condition. The other thing necessary to be saved. This, by the way, is the gospel message then that sets true churches apart from false churches. False churches preach what? Well, today, faith alone is the only condition or requirement. What kind of churches would say that in light of everything that we've looked at from God's word? The majority of evangelical churches. Evangelical is the term that is used for uh, most Protestant churches, meaning uh, churches other than the Roman Catholic Church, which has its own set of problems, which damns it. But the evangelical church today preaches the gospel of Martin Luther, their founder, which is a gospel of faith alone. And Luther so wanted that to be the message that he actually plagiarized Scripture itself by putting the word alone in Romans 3.28 where it was not found. He did that in his uh, German translation uh, to the German people. False churches today, that's what they preach. That's why they'll tell you that you can just pray a prayer. That's why they have altar calls. You say, but that's, uh, that's the majority of churches out there. Any church I've ever been to, anything I've ever heard is that message. How can so many people be wrong? Well, a disciple of Jesus asked him that question in Luke 13. Again, you know the text. I won't turn to it. Even in his day, in Jesus' day, his disciples could see that uh, what Jesus was saying was not the popular message. And so the disciple comes to Jesus and says, are there only a few being saved? And Jesus doesn't reply by saying, oh, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. He says, agonizomai, agonize to enter through the narrow gate because I tell you many will want to, but will not be able. The question isn't, uh, are there a lot of people out there that want to go to heaven? They think they're going to heaven. The question is, are they able and according to Jesus no only a few only a few why well for the same reason a lot of people want to be rich but are not rich (laughs) you say to the poor person you want to be rich or maybe take rich out of the equation you just want to be able to pay your bills you want enough money and uh, and uh, and those people a lot of those people I would say the majority would say, absolutely, right? What's the problem? Well, in the majority of cases, the majority, not all, the majority of cases is they're not willing to do what they need to do to be that kind of a person. You see, it's not about want. It's are you willing to do, in this case, what God requires. What God requires. He is the author of our salvation, and so he is the one that defines what those conditions are. Are And again, in false churches, they've uh, narrowed it down to uh, faith alone. Hence the reason it's called the faith alone gospel. True churches, however, 
Churches that are listening to Jesus, listening to His Word, and not being so arrogant to think that they know better than their Lord Himself. They preach as we have seen today, faith expressed in the waters of baptism and faithful obedience. Again, in the sanctification of the Spirit, baptism for obedience, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, otherwise, no reboot for you. It doesn't matter that you think you've lived your entire life for Jesus. It doesn't matter that you feel that you love Jesus. Again, Jesus, Matthew 7, many, not few, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do such and such in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you, workers of iniquity. Any guesses as to the piece they missed? Workers of iniquity, workers of sin. Oh, I guess you didn't get the other part of the gospel message. Faithful obedience is also required. As a well-known commentator used to say, a half-truth is a whole lie. They got half of it, but not all of it. And it sends them to hell. False churches today preach only faith alone. And they don't even do that right, because where that faith is expressed, if God is to accept it, must be in the waters of baptism, and not a baptism anywhere, but in legitimate churches, if it is to be legitimate baptism. And that means we've committed ourselves to faithful obedience for the rest of our lives. This condition of committing our lives to faithful obedience in order to receive God's forgiveness or salvation has always been a part of the gospel. It's always been there. It's not something new. This is why in Hebrews 13, verse 8, the writer of Hebrews can say, Jesus is the same yesterday, in the past, today and forever. What he requires to come to him has always been the same. Peter's words are actually here in this text, in our text, just an allusion uh, to when the Israelites entered into covenant or saving relationship with God on Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 24, putting your finger in here and turning to this text. Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8. Here's when the Israelites came into covenant relationship with God or came into marriage with Christ unto salvation. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is elsewhere called the book of the law, and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, notice, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses, only after they make that commitment... Notice, and Moses then takes the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you according to these words. Notice the order, the order here. It is exactly the same as Peter. What comes first? The commitment of the people. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And only after that commitment does Moses say, now you receive the blood. It is sanctification 
in the Spirit or by the Spirit through the waters of baptism. We've already established that. Uh, but in that, we are making that kind of commitment. We are making a commitment to obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That is the condition for receiving forgiveness through His blood. It is the condition to salvation. Faithful obedience is therefore what the scriptures are talking about when it speaks about repentance or turning from sin as the prerequisite to faith or salvation. You remember Jesus' message back in Mark chapter 1 verse 15. What does Jesus preach? Or uh, Mark summarizes it for us. Repent and believe. Repent, the prerequisite. Turn from your sins. That's what repent means. Turn, but not just turn. It's not just the idea of turning from one thing, but in the process of turning away from one thing, I'm turning in the direction of another. I am turning in the direction of obedience to Jesus Christ. Turning away from sin in the world and what the world has to say, even about salvation, even what it means to be a Christian. I'm turning away from that and I'm turning to Jesus. I'm listening to Jesus. And what Jesus says. Repentance. And what proceeds out of that is the condition to believing for salvation. Repent and believe. Consider also Paul's message in 26.18. Acts 26.18. Here too we see these things or the things that we've been talking about here this morning. Paul here is... A, Telling the king, King Agrippa, of his conversion and uh, the ministry that he was called to, which is a, was a ministry to the Gentiles, to a people, as we started with, without hope or without mercy. And here's what he was told to do, to open their eyes, verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are Here's our word sanctified or sanctification. Who are sanctified by faith in me. Notice the similarities between what we've been looking at in Peter and now Paul's message. Sanctification or baptism associated with faith and turning from sin or darkness as he says here and Satan to God or obedience to God. It's the key, again, to receiving, as he says here, forgiveness of sins. It's all there. Pretty clear, I would say, if we're listening to God's word. Pretty clear. Closing contemplation, then. Closing contemplation. The gospel message of faith expressed in baptism and faithful obedience as necessary to salvation. These two things, faith expressed in baptism and faithful obedience, both as necessary to salvation, was the commission of Jesus before ascending back to heaven. This is sometimes called the great commission of Jesus in Matthew 28. Just listen as I speak that now to you. What does Jesus say? Go into all the world and make disciples Make Christians, make followers of me. And here's how you do it, two things. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey all 
that I have commanded. Here's the thing then to contemplate. Why have so many missed it? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the time that we can have in your word. We are fully and completely dependent upon your word. We wouldn't know any of this if it wasn't for your word. If we listen to the words of men in this world that we live in today, even the part of this world that claims to be Christian, we'd be on a path that would be damning our souls the whole time thinking we're going to heaven. So we thank you, Lord, for giving us your word and for opening our eyes and our ears to listen to you, to not trust ourselves, but to listen to you because salvation is from the Lord. Make it so for everyone in the hearing of my voice here today. To the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.